Thank you for listening to Room 9, my daddy's podcast. Hope you enjoy. If you would like to help Room 9, please visit their support page. You can listen to Room 9 on your favorite podcast listening platform. Don't forget to visit our Instagram and Facebook page. Please like it. Room 9, if you better yourself, you better the world. Day, good evening, good afternoon. Whenever you listen to this, I hope it's good. And thanks for taking the time out of your day to stop on by and give a listen to another podcast of Room 9. And I actually talk with a licensed clinical social worker today, and her name is Anna Shermatz. She has her own private practice, Shermatz Counseling. I will leave links to her Instagram and website below. And she specializes in trauma, so we had an awesome conversation around that. And she's I think she says in the podcast that for about 15, 16 years, she's been doing EMDR. So we get into a little bit of that and the great and awesome results she has seen from using that in therapy. And that is about it. What is going on around here nowadays? I'm trying to think a lot, but I have learned over recently, I shouldn't announce when I want to start something or a series or something. I should just do it because there are plenty of times I say I'm going to start something and I, that ends up getting pushed back or something else is a different creative idea comes up and I want to do that. You know how that goes. So I've decided not to start yelling out to the masses what little thing I want to start. You'll just know when it happens. That's right. All right, folks. I don't know why I'm still talking. Listen to the podcast. Enjoy. Go to room9podcast.com. Uh, the shirts are going to be getting sent out by the end of September, so if you have one of those on order, I will be sending the email out with an update very shortly, and that is it. Much love. You guys are the best, and as always, thanks for your time. Talk to you next week. Peace. Thanks for uh, joining me. We are officially recording, just so you know. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. I guess, you know, how I always like to start, obviously get a little rundown of who you are, what you do, and maybe a little bit why you do it. And we can kind of just um, go from there with things. Sure. So my name is Anna Shermatz. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I now own a group psychotherapy practice in Cheektowaga, and I've, I've been a social worker for about 16 years now. And I, I just love the work. And as as I kind of dove headfirst into this field, I started out as a domestic violence counselor. And that was kind of like jumping into the deep end of a really cold swimming pool, I think. <laughs> I imagine, yeah. But, but what became clear to me really early on was the role that trauma was playing as like the undercurrent. So people kept kind of coming back in of this, it happened again, I relapsed again, my depression is out of control again, and how often that seemed to have roots in trauma. Yeah, that's the the one thing I have kind of always looked at when I've talked with people that I've, when I've been around in rehabs and even in jail, I have found, I don't think I've ever found somebody who was ruining their lives by using drugs that did not have a traumatic experience. And yes. I mean, you'd be very hard pressed to find anybody who's just, you know, using drugs for the hell of it without a reason of escape. And I've always been a fan of that. It's not why the addiction, why the pain, 
And I think that rings so true with so many people, if not all people who are struggling with uh, substance use. Absolutely. And the research really backs that up, that there's a closer relationship between childhood trauma and substance use in adulthood. There's that those two things happen together more often than obesity and diabetes happen together. Really? Wow. So, so there's just an enormous amount of research about in particular childhood trauma and the whole matrix of bad things that open up in life as a, as a result of that. Yeah, that's super interesting. And you said it's more so you see higher percentage of people who have childhood trauma as opposed to adult trauma. So as a clinician, I think those two things kind of feed off each other. Okay. Yeah. And it's, it's about, so what I tell my clients is this, if you grow up in situations that think like things are not being dealt with appropriately, it's like moving into an apartment where the smoke detector doesn't work. Hmm. So what that means is that you might be going into situations that aren't really very safe, but your smoke detector doesn't work. So it's not registering. This isn't great. And sometimes the smoke detector goes off. So you get scared that I'm in danger now and there's nothing going on. And, and just the, like the, the way in which that makes people feel like I must be going crazy. So human beings want to be comfortable. And when what's uncomfortable in your life is what's happening in your head. (laughs) Yes. Yep. People are going to find a way to be comfortable and there's, Mm -hmm. There's really healthy ways of dealing with that. And there's a whole lot of things that are kind of in the middle where it's like, well, that's not great, but it's not terrible. And then there are some really unhealthy ways of coping. Yeah, something I have always kind of brought up, you find as you come across people all the time that everybody is coping with something in some sort of way. And what way they are coping with obviously depends on the results of your <laughs> that happened in your life. Because I always said that us people who use who have used heavy drugs to cope with pain and trauma, obviously you ruin your life really quickly. As opposed to I'm just gonna watch Netflix and buy some clothes online as to cope it. And there's yes. a big difference. <laughs> there is a big difference, and and it, it's important I think for everybody to recognize we. Every person who's living has a way of coping with stress that they know this isn't great, but it's the best I have come up with. Yeah, no, that that is very, very true. I find um, I find the people who don't realize they're coping with the smaller things as far as like, all right, I'm just going to watch movies all the time and not do anything are the ones who judge people that are struggling with substance use a lot more. I usually have found that in my life as well. When you say childhood trauma, what age range does that kind of leave you around? Is that like a strict cutoff at 17 or? What I would say is that if you have, if your needs are consistently met from birth to about age 12, you're in a much better position. And that doesn't mean if if the world falls apart when you're a teenager, that that doesn't cause a lot of scar tissue, but you have better building blocks to work with. It makes it, it gives you a better foundation. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Cause I know we also, something I've really have thought a lot about, and it's interesting too, how, which I don't even know if we should go down this road, but I want to bring it up. Cause I know I, pretty sure I brought up to you on a phone because it's something I've been fascinated with Mm -hmm. is creativity 
and trauma and also with obviously substance use as well and how uh, you have found I have found I don't know about you I have found you know, throughout rehabs throughout my long-term rehab I've found so many creative people and it's almost it's I guess it's not necessarily a prerequisite for creativity to have early childhood trauma but I found that so many people have that trauma and one thing that I have been really I've thought about a lot a lot lately is one of the biggest things that helped me heal and cope with my trauma in a healthy way and everything else was creativity, writing mm-hmm. music, um, you know, and even what I'm doing now as far as doing some multimedia production stuff, graphic design, video production. Mm-hmm. I have found this amazing outlet that has made me feel like I'm doing something good for the world. And mm-hmm. it's something I want to bring to a lot more people, just an opportunity to for people to connect with their creativity. I feel like that's mm-hmm. one thing that is missing so much out of these the rehabs and stuff is oh, creativity. It, it absolutely is. And one of the things that we have known for, for a long, long time is that people start to heal when they feel heard. That's awesome. And, and if the way you, it feels safe to express the stuff that's so hard to talk about is through music, art, dance, whatever it is, I think the list has gotten really long. We need to to build a longer table to make space for that because talk therapy is really hard. You're asking people to walk in and explore things that they don't want to think about. <laughs> they definitely don't want to think about it. Yeah, that's that, that's a great point because obviously talking about it is extremely healthy. And that's that's why I think therapies like EMDR have have such a high success rate because I'm working through stuff, but I don't have to to verbalize that and catapult myself back to what happened then. Yeah, you find that because um, obviously I believe talking is a very extremely healthy thing to do, but it's obviously a very difficult place to get to. And I have you know recently I have obviously doing the podcast and I'm all about you know, let's share our stories. I think that's super important. And I didn't realize, I kind of forgot how difficult it was because so many people reach out. I can't believe you were talking so openly about your struggles and, you know, and you kind of lose sight of that, how difficult it really is for anybody to, you know, rehash some trauma and go through it. It it can stir up a lot of stuff. And if, if people are kind of in this headspace where I can't keep doing what I'm doing, I, I just can't, like... I'm, I'm not going to wake up from my next bender. I'm going to mm. lose my family. CPS is knocking on my door. My job put me on probation. Whatever it is, people, sometimes people know this is hard and I need to. And the hardest thing in the world is that very first step. If you take one step and you don't fall flat on your behind, it's so much easier to take the next step. And then the third step is half as hard as the second step. And then you're kind of looking behind you like, I can't even remember why it was so scary to take the first step. I mean, I always said that too, with anything in life, that hardest step is admitting it, is finding it, naming it, saying what it is, and then being like, all right, but it does. It seems so overwhelming, so difficult to just, all right, this is what it is. This happened mm-hmm. and it hurt and it sucked. It's uh, it's annoying because it's like a cliche saying, oh, the first step to admitting is quitting. And you want to slap somebody when they say it, but it's obviously a cliche for a reason. And it is that really that first step to just saying it. I remember even just about with my, my addiction, just saying it was like, wow, I can breathe a little better now. I don't have this secret inside me. 
Yeah, that's huge. I think the the secrets, the holding things in, the denying things, the lying, obviously, that and that just continues to build, and especially in, obviously, substance use, and people pile that on and pile that on. So I'm assuming as the pile gets bigger, the more difficult it is to talk about it. I think when people have struggled, it's sometimes really difficult to imagine a life without that suffering, and that people heal. We don't, I don't think people hear enough that you can heal from trauma. You can heal from really awful things that are difficult to even say out loud. This happened to me. PTSD is a treatable condition, just like addiction is a treatable condition. Yeah, that's interesting. I kind of want to bring up one thing you just said that kind of caught my attention that was really interesting is that some people don't even want to let go of it almost as if it's a part of them as they are. Even though it's something painful and something difficult, they want to hold on to it because it's a part of them. I think it's very vulnerable to ask people to imagine a different kind of life Hmm. and that people hate to be vulnerable. Even really brave people who are hitting grand slams in their life, vulnerability is so hard. And to imagine saying, I know I have a problem and I'm... I'm going to start walking the walk and talking the talk and grabbing the life preservers that people keep throwing at me. That's very vulnerable because what if I can't do it? What do I make it mean about me if I go to rehab and then I relapse? What do I make it mean about me if I'm taking my medicine and I'm really trying and I'm going to groups and I'm seeing my counselor And then my depression comes up and smacks me upside the head and I don't get out of bed for a week. It's almost like having that that fear of failing at it. And then, I I mean, I I feel like that does. It sucks the wind right out of you. I've seen it happen to so many people who have, in a whole nother podcast episode, this could be of the guilt that we put on people for relapsing, but we'll talk about that another time. (laughs) (laughs) But I've just seen um, people just get the wind sucked out of them. And it is. I mean, vulnerability, it's so it's so strange because we know it's the only way for like true connection, like to really feel connected to the world. We have to be us. We have to be open. We have to be honest. We have to be vulnerable. And yet at the same time, we feel as if we do that, we won't feel any connection. And it's almost like this, um, you know, kind of paradox we hold in our head or dichotomy we hold in our head of, I know I have to do this to feel this, but I still feel like if I do this, I won't feel this. And it's, it's a tough thing to kind of get to. I mean, it took me forever and it's a constant thing to balance because you can easily hide it again. It's extremely difficult. And I do think that people sometimes minimize how hard that is. And Brene Brown, who I just adore her, you know, she, she has talked extensively about how vulnerability is the most accurate measurement of courage that without vulnerability life is flavorless it's mundane it's unsatisfying it's hard and that vulnerability allows for people to experience the things in life that that we all want it's connection it's authenticity it's a value-driven life yeah it's i mean i love Brene brown's work as well I remember 
when was it? Her first little TED Talks, probably what, eight, nine years ago or so, <laughs> maybe even 10. I'm trying to remember when I first watched it, but it is. Yeah, it's super strange how something so difficult. I love how in the TED Talk she talked about people didn't say it was super painful, but they didn't say it was very comfortable either. It's almost like the beauty in the pain almost kind of thing. Like you just, when you can learn to be that completely vulnerable, you're comfortable and just being not okay in a sense. Like, I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but you start finding beauty in the pain almost. Yeah. I, I, more than one thing is always true. That, that's the world. <laughs> and a lot of people have to learn. I had to learn how to make space for more than one thing to be true because we really want life to be a true false test. And it's mm -hmm. not, it's an essay. <laughs> Yeah, no, we do want life to be like black and white, don't we? Everything. This or that, no in-betweens. <laughs> well, and and that when, you know, when when people approach anything, especially a complicated situation like addiction, it can't be black and white. And the more people try to make it this boxed in yes or no, the more it takes away everybody's humanity, the less compassion people can have for what's happening it it just makes everybody miserable no it, it definitely does so what what work have you done do you work with mostly people with ptsd or just kind of i mean let's define trauma for a second so obviously ptsd is a type of trauma so what would you define as like trauma who are the like the people you're seeing my definition of trauma is very expansive what okay. i think a traumatic event is is something that happened that you did not want to see happen that happened anyway and that changed how you see the world or how you see yourself in it okay um, and because i have this very like broad scale definition of trauma i would say that i almost exclusively work with people who have experienced traumatic events and that's not necessarily sort of the enormous things that make the evening news that we all like everyone can recognize a severe car accident as a traumatic event. What we might not recognize is that finding out your your loved one had an affair is a traumatic mm. event. Pa pa parents across America are traumatized by the disaster that has been COVID-19 because it's changed how I see myself in the world. I feel out of control. I don't know how to keep myself and my kids safe. And it's it's increasing suffering. Do you deal with a certain age rate, age range of people? Yes. So I don't work with children. Okay. It's the passion of lots of people. It's not my passion. And I think treating trauma is a specialty and treating kids as a specialty. So if, if you're not prepared to really dive deep into that specialty of a specialty, I think that's risky. Mm -hmm. So on my caseload, I work with adults. I have a number of people who I'm working with around what I would call traumatic grief. What Now, what do you define that as? As in like something happening to a loved one? So, something happening to a loved one, typically something that, was fairly unexpected when there's no time in life to like brace for impact there's no like hey this is coming this is coming oh look it's here that really changes how people interact with the world because that that feeling of safety is gone mm, i know all about that so to give you a little background of myself i was i was 15 in 1999 and my brother and sister died in a car accident 
And I just remember that that whole experience was, I don't feel like I have too many memories before that. Mm-hmm. Like my life kind of like started at 15 and went on from that. And I like used to be, which I still kind of am obsessed with thinking about death. I mean, I've thought about death every people I love dying almost every day since then. It's really mm-hmm. has been, you know, something that I've had to kind of come to terms with and, you know, go, um, grow with and you know, figure out how to live with it in peace. Mm-hmm. So if I, when someone comes in with you with a childhood trauma, is there, obviously you have your I's you have to dot and, and T's you have to cross, mm-hmm. but do you kind of get to know somebody before you go into a specific type of therapy? Are you doing EDMR? Are you... Yeah. So, so I use EMDR pretty extensively. It's actually why a number of people seek out working with me. I heard great things about that. Yeah, I've talked to some people. I don't think it's fair to ask somebody to do trauma work with somebody they just met. Hmm. So I, I think establishing safety in that relationship has to happen before you leave the train station. If I'm going <laughs> to yeah, ask yeah. you to get on this train with me and and work through really hard things, you have to trust me. It takes time, obviously, to build that. It takes time. I give a fair amount of information to people about like, so this is why we're going to do what we're going to do. It's not just that I want to talk about the timeline of of the big events in your life. That helps me to create this roadmap that I need for the next Mm -hmm. step. I assume that that makes people feel better because that that eases my anxiety about just about everything. Mm -hmm. If I know why we're going to do what we're going to do, I feel better. Absolutely. And that that allows for people to ask questions because a lot of people have been in treatment for some time before certain interventions are even mentioned because no nobody's trained in everything. Mm-hmm. I'm not trained in everything. There's certain situations that's like, look, that's you, you really ought to go see somebody that does that. I don't do that. Part of that conversation really probably should be in intake that the person mm-hmm. who's sitting down with someone is able to express, I care about your suffering. And because I care about your suffering, I might suggest to you that I'm not the train conductor whose train you ought to get on, because I think that this intervention might actually help you get where you want to go instead of, you know, if you're trying to take a train from here to New York City, my train might go from here to Albany. Well, that's closer than we are in Buffalo, but that's not helpful. No one is like, oh, that's a great way to spend an entire weekend. I'll take a train all over upstate New York. I mean, you find this, I think, is happening in business all over, even way outside of the realm of trauma. But I think that's such an important role as a human being dealing with somebody who is so fragile is to be like, you know what? I think this so-and-so would help you better. I think this going here and talking to this person would be better for you. I believe that that happens a lot. I think. I think what ends up happening during assessment, like you're getting to know somebody. So I might work with somebody for six months. I, and I, I don't, I don't want to take a stab in the dark, but when, when you walked in for a, a heroin addiction, did somebody assess you for PTSD? <laughs> um, you know what? I would think so. I don't know if they specific, specifically said, well, we're going to talk and see if you are struggling with PTSD. 
but I think, you know, as, you know, they're checking off the their list of questions, I think, yeah, I'm sure, like, what traumatic experiences have okay. you had in your life, so. Uh, I mean, so, so I guess from my stance, and I've, I've been in private practice for about five years, so mm-hmm. it's, it's been some time since I was really in the trenches in an agency, that it's, again, like, it's very vulnerable to ask somebody to come in and share with a stranger these events. So by the time that kind of bubbles its way to the surface, somebody might feel like, you know, you're the only person I've ever told this to, Mm -hmm. and I've known you for nine months, so I don't want to be vulnerable all over again. Because it's like starting all over as soon as you kind of come across somebody new. And I I think that that gets complicated quickly, you know, in in a a perfect world, if I ever win the lottery, this is where my money is going. Because I, I think it's about training. I think it's about saying, if you're working in human services, these are the three interventions that everybody should know. Which are? I would say everyone should know DBT, which is very concrete skill building. Mm-hmm. I think everybody should know EMDR because I have seen it. it. EMDR has shown me things that are the closest I will ever come to witnessing a miracle. That the, the progress I have seen people make with that intervention has left me speechless. Yeah, I've heard nothing but great things about it. The people uh, I've talked to that have used it. And, and the third thing I think therapists really would benefit from learning to help clients with is acceptance and commitment therapy, which is very values driven. And it's more along the lines of like a value is never right or wrong. Something is important to somebody just because it's important. So what are the things that are taking you further away from the life that you want to have? The values too. It just, Hey, this is what I want in life. Since I've started my business several times, I've had to really kind of go through, all right, what is my main thing, which ironically enough, I always think of the word cur, courage from Brene Brown's TED Talk because that's where it came in my head to really, I want to share stories of people's stories and I want to get people the courage to share their story wholeheartedly. So I always kind of have that word in my head, but you know, you kind of go through and I think so many of us don't even do that in our individual lives. Like, what do I really want? What do I want to do? What makes me happy? You know, what makes me angry? What makes me sad? And so many of us don't even go through this in our own selves. And I mean, what a simple, but such an effective thing we could be doing. Absolutely. 40% of all behavior is just a habit. Wow. That's crazy. Which, which when I first heard that, I was like, that's, that's a made up statistic. What do you mean? <laughs> and then I finished the book and I was like, Oh, okay. So, so that apparently is actually real. <laughs> what book? Uh, what book was that? It's called the the Power of Habits. Okay. But what that author really does is talk about very concrete, small things that we don't think individually have much power. Even things like, do you make your bed before you leave? the house Mm -hmm. in the morning. Is your bag ready to go the night before or are you running around the the morning of? And how one good habit, if you can really kind of focus on, I'm not going to fix everything all at once. If I have a goal Mm -hmm. of being healthier, I might just say, I'm going to take a multivitamin every morning. And in order to do that, I'm going to put that right next to the coffee pot. (laughs) because there's no way, even if the house is on fire, I'm going to make a cup of coffee before I leave in the morning. (laughs) 
I mean, this is something that I have found that has changed my life. I've read, I've read a book by this clinical psychologist I, I really enjoy. And one of them is, you know, he just talks about just those little tiny steps that add up every day, ultimately bring in a big change. And that was it. Honestly, that's where I started. Make your bed every day. Let me just do that. If I fail at everything else, at least I've made my bed at the end of the day and I've accomplished that. But I think that's so important to add those small steps up and build them up. I think it's imperative because people get this idea. And and I see this a lot when people are coming into treatment where it's like, I feel like I'm at the bottom of the mountain and the view down here sucks. I can't stay at the bottom of the mountain anymore. I want to be at the top of the mountain. So there is no most important step in a marathon. Mm. Everybody thinks about the, the last step as the only one that matters. Well, tell me about the 50th step in the marathon. The 50th step is not more important than the last step. Mm. How, how do we break this down so there's continual little steps? And how do you know when you're making a little step? Because it's a skill to know you're using a skill. Because it is. And it's very different than how people, I think, are are sort of conditioned to think. Mm-hmm. People have this weird idea of like, well, I should only I should only use a skill when I'm suffering or when I'm having a tough day. It's like, no, no way. <laughs> Don't do that. That's like me telling you, hey, I really want to learn how to drive a stick shift, but only take me driving in a stick shift when it's been snowing. <laughs> No one would do that. <laughs> That's super interesting too, how we, we always think it's like this got to be the special occasion for us to use the skills we have been given or even to know your skills. I mean, so many people don't even know what they're they're gifted at. And I think so much of it just comes back to getting to know yourself because I feel like we think we know ourselves, but we have no idea who we are half the time. And we know our favorite colors and our favorite foods, but we don't know like why we react to something in a certain emotional manner or why we think in a certain way. And I think when we start watching ourselves, like I always say, watch yourself like you're a complete stranger, just subjectively, like you have no idea who you are. Watch how you react. Why did you act? Ask yourself questions and get to know who you are. And I think that's such an important step to learning your skills, when to use them, what is a skill. I mean, the list goes on of the benefits that provides. And I think it's something that I've tried to encourage my audience to do because it's something I'm constantly working on in myself is, all right, just one little step, watch yourself, observe, watch, and ask questions, you know, and I think Mm -hmm. it's such an important key to even developing courage to kind of bring it back to trauma, even developing the courage to walk into your darkness, to walk into your pain and be able to say, hey, I'm struggling with this. I think that's a huge piece to it for sure. I totally agree. You can, um, you can plead the fifth on this one and I will totally edit it out, but I'm curious as to uh, what your thoughts are on the studies that have gone with psychedelics and PTSD. I don't know if you are, if you're totally out of that field, have never thought about it. If you want to plead the fifth, well, Um, I will take this out. I was just always got to have to ask that question. So, so what I will say is that I feel like I don't have enough information to really have an informed opinion. I think it's interesting. And, and what makes it interesting is the role the brain plays in memory. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, we know traumatic memory is not held in the brain the way non-traumatic memory is. That's why something I can know it happened a long time ago, but in my heart, it feels like this happened it's 11 minutes ago. now, yeah. And I, I don't feel like I have enough information to really have 
an, an opinion, especially around um, ketamine, I know has kind of been a hot topic recently. And I'm, I'm sure there's other stuff that I, I have a garden level of suite. And I always tell people like, I'm just in my basement doing the best I can to help people. <laughs> but yeah, I've heard so many good things about EMDR. And I feel like before we skedaddle here, I would like to touch base on that with you a little bit and talk about why it's beneficial, how it helps people. You're going to have to help me with the, uh, cause I'll sit here and struggle. I know it's, uh, you have to do the abbreviation. I forget okay. desensitization so, or something. I'm going to edit this part out so I don't sound like an idiot. <laughs> okay. So EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And I'm going to get super geeky and technical for 45 seconds, if that's okay. I, I love geeky and technical, so go for okay. it. So we have two hemispheres in the brain. The right hemisphere in the brain holds short-term memory and it holds emotional memory. So this conversation right now is entering your brain into the right hemisphere and it gets scanned almost like a scanner at a checkout line. And if nothing sets off the alarm bells, that memory transitions from the right hemisphere into the left. The left hemisphere in your brain holds the story. Once that transition is complete, there's not much emotionality to the memory. It's more like reading a script. What happens for traumatic memory is that that scanning mechanism doesn't work right. So those mm. hard memories stay locked in the part of your brain that's designed to hold short-term memory only. And because of that, it stays very fragmented. There's not that coming together that we need to see for a narrative memory to happen. So things get triggered all the time, sights and smells and body sensations and thoughts, all those pieces that haven't come together yet. And what EMDR does is it helps the two hemispheres in your brain to talk to each other to get that stuck memory unstuck so it can go where it needs to go. This is a really dated reference, but I haven't found a better one yet. It's the difference between saying, I have these scary movies and they're never in the right case. So if I think I'm sitting down with a cup of chocolate milk and it's like, I really have had a tough day. I'm going to watch Finding Nemo and just give myself that. But I didn't put in Finding Nemo. I put in <laughs> Saw. And now I'm scared and my body is freaking out and I'm full of adrenaline because that memory isn't where it needs to be. So what EMDR does, and, and people think about the eye movements and kind of the classic version of EMDR, there's other ways to get that bilateral stimulation. Okay. See, I didn't even know that. So I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're here. It just helps to put the past back in the past. PTSD exists because you cannot escape from your head. And your brain is not good at telling time. The past, the present, and the future all kind of feel the same. Mm-hmm. So when there's not these sort of concrete things of like, I know this happened 10 years ago because it feels like it didn't happen 10 years ago. It feels like it just happened. My brain has confused the past and the present. I was trained in EMDR about 12 years ago, and I've used it really extensively in my career. I found it to be extremely helpful for people. Yeah, like I said, I've, I think I personally know probably six or seven people that I've talked with that have talked nothing but great about it. I think that's been an amazing thing. A really good buddy of mine, it, it has totally helped him with um, PTSD. He was in Iraq and 
yeah, he had a huge crazy story, and that is something that has totally has changed his life um, this time around. Was the first time when I met him in rehab. You said now it's just not just the whole eye movement thing. So that's the thing that I think most people use. There's also this thing called a ferrotapper, which it's it sends a very so you have these two paddles connected mm-hmm. to this box, and the paddles vibrate. It kind of feels like when you're holding your cell phone. But it's about this bilateral stimulation. How do I get the two parts of your brain in sync? Because the right hemisphere is holding this thing that's too heavy and it can't put the pieces together. So how do I get that to talk to the left hemisphere of your brain where that memory needs to go to not have the feeling that it has? And that doesn't mean, I mean, obviously people are processing things that like, that will never be a happy memory. (laughs) Yes. What it will be, is is the difference again this is another really super dated example i'm about to use but bear with me it's the difference between sitting in a movie theater watching saving private ryan and feeling like i'm on the beach i can smell the blood in the air there's bullets whizzing by me i'm gonna die any second and seeing a picture of d-day that might never be something i really enjoy looking at but it doesn't ruin my entire week mm. It becomes easier to mm-hmm. exist with it, I think is something I always like to say. It's simultaneously holding something very painful and happiness at the same time. Mm-hmm. And you learn to kind of use both of them. Mm-hmm. It, you know, kind of like I said in the beginning of it, it is, it's in a strange way. It's just finding the beauty and pain. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm, I'm at a point in my life, I'd, I had to teach my, I remember I had, I had to teach myself how to cry again because <laughs> oh, I remember, yeah. I remember laughing with my buddy so hard one time, like the, the snot coming out, the like where you want to stop laughing. And mm-hmm. I just remember that weightless feeling afterwards. And I was like, and for some reason it just hit me then this is the same feeling you get after that deep weeping. You know, mm-hmm. that kind of lighter feeling like, wow, this was a great release. And then it brought me to like, when's the last time I even cried? Like, it's barely been like 10 years. So, I mean, I've and I talked to a lot of people or it's been a decade since they've cried, but it's just such a great, a great relief, a great mm-hmm. thing. And when you can be comfortable with just, there's some beauty in it, I guess is the point I'm getting at. It's hard to explain, but. There is, there, there's a release in being able to say, I'm, I'm carrying this burden. And sometimes just by saying that out loud to the universe, mm-hmm. that burden feels a little lighter. No, it absolutely does. So Anna, how do um, people want to get a hold of you? I don't know if you're taking new clients or what your, you know, your deal is. If you're on social media at all, you know, how do people get a hold of you? And Sure. So, so the group is taking new clients. I am currently not able to take new clients. Okay. Most of the providers in my group though, have extensive training around helping people with trauma, helping people with addictions, depression, anxiety, just a lot of things that, that make people suffer. Um, we are on Instagram and have a Facebook business page, which is, um, sure counseling. Yeah, that is great. So you guys kind of post regularly on there or? Yeah. 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 I think that's, that's one thing I think is missing so much too from the, the mental health and substance use world is more like modern connection on YouTube and social media. I think we need to, I mean, that's one, something I really think is something that can change people's lives. Like it's just a Kickstarter when somebody gets up the courage to just, all right, 
I'm going to share my story real quickly, even for 10 minutes right here. And it's on record. And I think I've seen that change people's lives. And it's just been so humbling for me. I feel so blessed to be in this position to just here, here's a microphone and here's a camera. Let's, let's share your story. And the people who do that are just, it's amazing to see the results. I think it changes the conversation. And what I think it really does is it helps people to not feel alone. Absolutely. Human beings are, we are such social animals. We really thrive when we feel cared about, when we feel connected to other people. And when something's going on that's hard to talk about, this secrecy comes over of like, well, how, how do mm. I really feel about the idea of the world knowing this? And I don't, I don't know that I think it's possible to reach adulthood and not have some things where it's like, oh, well, that wasn't ideal. <laughs> I should talk to someone about that. Yeah, I, I think that <laughs> so many of us, so many growing ups I've seen, it's like so many of us need to talk more. I think and just even if it's somebody, you know, our, our friend or whatever, it just, I feel like we have this idea and I don't know if it's just in the West. I feel like that I'm assuming obviously over in the Eastern part of the world, they deal with things, but I feel like there's more of a, a we kind of attitude. Um, there's such an individual thing here, but I feel like we always, I mean, even every day I have worked, I've been working on being vulnerable, being authentic, being genuine. And it is every day I have to check myself and step back and look, are you really being open and honest and authentic, even with yourself? Because we can get into these points where we ignore intentionally, all right, I'm not, I don't want to talk about this, so I'm going to pretend it never happened. And it just happens. <laughs> like it is, I always, the, the power of our psyches are, it's incredible what, what it does to, I mean, essentially overall to kind of protect us in a way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it's just amazing. And I think you, you hit it right on the head. Like it gives, it lets people feel they're not alone when you share your stories. It gives you courage and strength. And then it gives another person who hears you share your story who can identify with parts of it the courage to maybe want to do it. I love it. And it's such a simple thing. It's just, hey, I'm struggling with this. This is why, this is how. And, and the more normalized that is, the less intimidating it's going to be for mm -hmm. all of us. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm really passionate about. And I'm excited to kind of continue to share people's stories. And I love having people on like you to share stories of what you're you're doing, what good results you've seen, what bad results you've seen. And I'm super grateful for your time, Anna. And I always kind of leave it with people with this. When I first started hosting, I remember this one time I was just like, if you could say anything to the world right now, you know, what would you say? But this person gave an awesome answer. So I've kind of kept this cliche, cheesy saying going. So if you are, you had a few minutes to talk to somebody who's struggling with PTSD, who feels hopeless, who feels like they can't get any help, you know, what are your words of encouragement for them? I think what I would say first is you are not alone and that trauma is about something that happened to you. There's nothing wrong with you. There's something very wrong with some of the things that have happened to you. And that I, I really, I don't think I could do this work if I didn't believe that people are capable of healing even profoundly deep wounds. It's tough because I think so many of us feel like when we have a profoundly deep wound that it's hopeless, that uh, there's no way I'm getting over this. How can I continue on? Like, I mean, I think of my parents, you know, all the time after losing two kids, how they did it, especially after having two kids of my own. Um, and it's just, I mean, some people find the way to do it and 
I think we all can find a way to do it. I think we just need more stuff like this happening. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I do think, you know, when people start to talk about trauma, to talk about the things that are very difficult to talk about, that's extremely vulnerable to hear. And a lot of people sort of like, oh, don't, don't talk about that. Talk about how the, what the bills look like for this year. <laughs> Let's talk about the weather. And that healing is possible. And that, you, you know, once, once you find something that helps you, it's like somebody turned on all the lights. Mm. And I no longer keep stubbing my toe on that piece of furniture because now all the lights are on and I can see that. And because I can see that, I can move it around. And I eventually can ask myself, why do I have this big, ugly table right in the center of the room? Why am I keeping that? Oh, man, it's it's tough. Um, there is, There's just so many hurting people out there. Life happens on life's terms. And there's that piece where more than one thing is always true. And I, mm-hmm. I think the older you are, the more likely it is that you've experienced an event that what the world looks like at bedtime is not the way the world looked when you woke up that morning and how to find acceptance with that acceptance and approval are not the same thing. Yeah. There's, there's definitely a a big difference in that. And I I think that accepting piece is, that is again, the kind of the beginning of it. All right. If I can accept this has happened, now I can kind of deal with it and move forward and figure out how to work through it and work with it. And that's such a huge piece. So, well, thank you so much, Anna, for your time. I would, I had a great time. Thank you for having me. Yeah, not a problem. I will continue to stay in touch with you. I will let you know when I'm releasing this episode. If I had my schedule up, I would tell you, but I believe it. I will release this, not this Monday, but a week from this coming up Monday. But I'll email you links, and if you want to share it, I will send you some links and all that other jazz. Okay, wonderful. So, Thank and I, I will um, leave your your you know your practice and the, the links there and the info of the podcast and everything else so people can get in touch with you if they have any questions great thank you so awesome thank you so much anna and have a great rest of your friday and i will be in touch okay all right bye bye